Grateful that you're willing to do this with us this morning. John's used to listening a lot more than speaking um, as a therapist. And also, I, I just want to mention that um, as a photographer and as a tender of the land that um, he and Sandy, his wife, live on, um, John is good at seeing beauty in the natural world and in the people he comes across. Um, I'm grateful that I had a chance to spend a lot of nights and days at their uh, retreat center, Fern Rock Retreat, and uh, it's a prayerful and beautiful space. So with that spirit, John, we welcome you here with us. Why don't we pray together? Spirit of life and healing, fall afresh on us and on John today. Fill us anew with your love. Help us to open to the new thing you are doing within us, among us, through us. Breathe your life here and bring us more deeply into your life. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Thank you for your warm welcome and all those who had the courage to stand up and quote that verse about courage. I bring warm welcomes from Methacton Mennonite Church as well. It's good to be with you. And it's an honor to be here and represent many stories of trauma and abuse that I have heard. And so I'm here to honor those people that I have sat with. It seems in the last year or two, every time we turn on the news or check our phones, there's another story of, about, of abuse. And it's wonderful to be in a space that is open to looking at something that's very difficult that most of us do not want to look at. And it's important, I think, to remember that we're hearing these stories not because people are being abused, but because there are people with the courage to stand up and say what's happening to them. And they know that in the country at this point and in these spaces, there are people with hearts and minds open to make space to believe and to support. I also want to say I think it's a bit risky to ask a therapist to preach. As Samantha said, I'm used to listening to people. So if I go quiet for a while, that's okay. (laughs) We're also used to 60-minute sessions, (laughs) even though we don't have much to say. And when we do, we mostly ask questions like, how does that make you feel? (laughs) Or what are your earliest childhood memories? Or can you tell me more about that? (laughs) But I've come prepared to say a few things. I do have some questions. And I'll do my best to keep it under an hour. I see there's a clock back there. My, My hope for today is that we can leave here reminded about what it is like to be seen by the face of God. And also reminded that we, the body of Christ 
are the face of God. I want to think with you about what it means to recover from trauma and how we are often both the ones recovering and the collective body of Christ holding a space for others to recover. But before we think about what recovery looks like, we need to pay attention to what trauma looks like and how it can sometimes live in us long after the traumatic event. This is the part we don't want to see and naturally try not to see. An expert in the trauma recovery field, Peter Levine, has said that trauma is the most avoided, ignored, denied, misunderstood, and untreated cause of human suffering. And he defines trauma like this. People can, <clears throat> people can be traumatized by any event they perceive to be life-threatening. We become traumatized when our ability to respond to a perceived threat is in some way overwhelmed. I chose this Mark passage that was read for our text today because as I read this story through my therapist lens, I see a description of both trauma and a story of recovery. This man here described in the Gospel of Mark is the same man I met when I was a young therapist. I was working with a county mental health clinic, and as I was the newest therapist on staff, I was assigned to work with the most troubled clients, the ones who appeared to have little hope of recovery. I was tasked with working with those who had a major substance abuse problem and were either suicidal and are homicidal. Henry, the man described here in the Gospel of Mark, met these criteria. He was often brought to us by the police during a period of intoxication in an attempt to harm himself or somebody else. In and out of the county jail, in and out of our clinic, Henry was at least six feet eight, with hands the size of dinner plates. And in one of his lucid, sweet, sober moments, he shared with me a brief story of his life. From his earliest memory on through the rest of his life, he was beaten for being alive. And this continued until he grew up and determined that he would never again be on the wrong end of a stick. So he lived by the rule, do unto others so they can't do it to you. One of my first visits with Henry was a visit to the jail. He was in handcuffs and shackles and coming off a drunk. As we were shuffling down a hall, he collapsed in a seizure there on the tile floor of the county jail, violently thrashing about, and no one could get close enough to help him without being harmed. Verse 3 to 5. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When trauma is inflicted on us, God has wired our body for survival. If we have any warning that harm is coming our way, 
we naturally use our social relational self to calm and connect with a threatening person, to try to decrease the threat. If this isn't possible, our sympathetic nervous system prepares us for fight or flight. Our brain stem recognizes we are under a threat, and our body is flushed with adrenaline and cortisol. This increases our heart rate, our blood pressure, our breathing increases, and our muscles tense, all in preparation for fight or flight. We don't need to tell our brain to do this. This is the God-created drive towards survival. If our brain determines that we don't have the strength to overpower our attacker or the speed to run away, our brain directs us to freeze. Don't move, don't resist, freeze. Freezing increases our chance of survival when we can't flee or fight. Our body is wired to survive. If this need to freeze isn't quickly resolved and our body can't return to a place of safety and comfort, we can begin to separate from parts of ourselves. Psychologically, systemically, this works on the principle of reduction. If we reduce the size of an organization, it can increase the chance the organization will survive lean times. In a time of crisis, if we get rid of those people we theologically disagree with or politically disagree with, it increases our chance of survival, our ideals, our beliefs, our way of life will have a better chance of living. This makes sense in a time of crisis. If we are harmed personally and we can't stop it or get away from it, it helps to forget our disconnect from those parts of ourselves that hold the harm and the pain. Psychologically, we call this dissociation. We separate, divide ourselves, and try to stay away from the memory of the physical and the emotional pain of the trauma. Levine goes on to say, trauma is about the loss of connection to ourselves, to our bodies, to our families, to others, to the world around us. This is an incredibly adaptive way to survive trauma. However, if this dissociation, if this disconnected way of living this way of dividing ourselves, if this becomes a way of life, it can become harmful, damaging, debilitating, and divisive. Jesus saw this division and asked it to come out of the man. He did not call this man evil, but the spirit, the way of living. It was no longer helping him survive, but now was harming it had not only separated him from within, it had also separated him from his family and community. It had separated him from the very possibility, the source of healing. But because of this division within himself, this living in a place of survival, all he could imagine when Jesus approached him that he was another threat coming to harm. Mark chapter 5, 6, and 7 says, When he saw Jesus coming from a distance, 
he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. I learned a lot from Henry and many others with similar stories. I learned to see the imprint of trauma and the traces it lets behind in our bodies, our minds, our spirits. But if that were all I learned, I would have left this field years ago and pursued something more hopeful. But somewhere in those dark stories of harm and trauma, I saw flickers of light and spirit. And it dawned on me that these courageous survivors were sitting with me again and again because some part of them dared to live, dared to seek out healing and connection again. And I began to learn that God also wired our bodies for healing, for recovery. And once I knew their stories of pain, I began to ask different questions. What keeps you going? Why did you come today instead of harming yourself? What part of you cares keeps you living? In front of the sanctuary here today, we've lit five candles to represent different parts of ourselves. They may stand for our emotional self, our physical self, our social, our sexual All parts of ourselves. And if you're a a Harry Potter fan, there's a great illustration of this disconnection of ourselves when she talks about he who cannot be named being divided into, I think it's six or seven parts, and spread around the countryside so that he can survive. So when Harry and his friends are trying to get rid of him, They have to find each piece to do that. So again, a very adaptive way to survive. When we are harmed, it is possible that one or several of these parts will either be suppressed and disconnected or become overexpressed and accentuated. So a person sexually abused may survive by avoiding any sexual interest or desire, or they may become hypersexual and attempt to overcome the trauma by conquering, defeating it, not being subdued by the trauma. A person physically harmed may become aggressive and expect anyone who approaches them to to harm them, like Henry and the man in our gospel story today. Or they may become so conflict-averse that they avoid even saying what they want for supper if they think it will cause a conflict with someone else. We may cope by becoming hyper-spiritual and spiritualize all aspects of our life. Or we may totally abandon and lose all faith and belief. Our mind may stay on constant high alert, perceiving any other as a threat, or it may shut down and not recognize real threats as anything to be concerned about. The point is, trauma can cause any parts of our of ourselves to over or under respond to life, or they may seem to disappear completely 
as in a lack of emotional awareness or a lack of body sensations. One of the major concerns I hear from clients recovering from trauma is the fear that some part of them is broken beyond repair or that the trauma destroyed this part of them. When you have lived without an awareness of a part of yourself for many years, this fear makes a lot of sense. So often when we have lost the connection to a part of ourselves, we only experience its absence. We have survived by not noticing, by dissociating, by being disconnected. So to start the process of healing, we need someone to notice. To start the process of healing, we need someone to notice. We need someone to hold a space for us, a space of acceptance, safety, compassion. And this is where Jesus enters the story in Mark. He sees the man and he sees the divisions and he names the fracturing of this man. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Our names are given at birth. Our names are our personal identity and they connect us to our family of origin to our community. They connect us to ourselves. Jesus creates this space, this opportunity for the man to connect to his larger self, his many parts. To Jesus, he wasn't seen as an illness or a diagnosis or someone engaging in sinful activity or someone to be judged. He was seen as a man with a name who was in great pain and was doing his best to survive. My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. He knew. He knew he was divided and he thought that was the safest way to live. He did not know how to reconnect the parts. So Jesus begins the healing by noticing, naming, and creating a space for the man to recognize that he was divided and in need of connection. And now the next part of this story gets a little weird. After the man said his name was Legion and recognized that he was split up in many parts, he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. So Mark tells us that Jesus sent them into a herd of pigs who immediately jumped into the lake and drowned. Why the pigs? Now this might be stretching my therapeutic interpretation to the breaking point. (laughs) But I have to wonder if the community's response to this event doesn't possibly give us a clue why Jesus sent these many parts into the pigs. Clearly, this herd of pigs was a source of income for the community, which this man was a part of. Had the community put the income and stability above healing and relationships? Was Jesus possibly trying to point out this conflict? 
Because look at the community's response. Mark says, when they came to Jesus, this is the community, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Why did they want Jesus to leave? Because their neighbor, their cousin, their son was sitting there clothed and in his right mind? Or because their income had jumped into the sea? Are both. Were they concerned that this man, now being of sound mind, might speak the truth and the source of his trauma? And that that truth might threaten power and income? I told you we ask a lot of questions. And now this nice little twist that Mark ends this story with that indicates to us that this man has truly been restored to his right mind. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. We know he's in his right mind. Of course he does. The community is upset that he is well and that the pigs are gone. Would you want to stay? And now in Jesus' response to this man, we see the wise, compassionate face of God. The God who created us to live in community, who understands that our trauma happens in the context of community, who also knows that our healing also must happen in community. Go home, he said. Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much he has had mercy on you. Likely not an easy thing to do. But in spite of those who are afraid of him, he must have had some support and love. For verse 20 says, So the man went away and began to tell in the ten cities how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Amen. We're going to take some time for you to reflect on what you've heard. And if you choose to invite you to come and light a candle here off of these five candles that symbolize parts of all of us.